Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm 24. We're going to be looking at a psalm this morning that, just kind of on the surface level, a quick reading, um, has one pretty clear direction and meaning that Dave's want to communicate. Um, but there's also kind of some, some endings to psalm that uh, always excite me. I, I'm not real big into movies. Um, don't really go to the movies a whole lot, but when I, I do, there's a couple of franchises that I typically go and see, and one of them is the Marvel movie series, just because I love the way everything is so interconnected. And I can really respect that, because it, it reminds me of the Bible, that, that there are all these little subtle things that you don't notice the first two or three times that you watch the movie, but later as other movies come out, you remember, like, oh, the, the reference that, the comment about that plot twist three movies ago or five movies ago and and i i respect that because that's a lot of the way that the bible is and and really i think any great storytelling involves this aspect of dropping what's often referred to as easter eggs these little things that are right there in plain sight and yet they're they're hidden from our understanding until a later time when we can then go back and look and see, oh, okay, that's that's what they were trying to communicate. I think when you look at stories like the Chronicles of Narnia or J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, <clears throat> you, you find that common thread in those stories as well, that, that each story is building upon a previous story and some little small detail that didn't really seem to be that significant in the first book or the first movie all of a sudden is playing this huge role at the end. And that's what we're going to see this morning. At least that's what I hope we're going to see this morning as we study Psalm 24 together. Now, to get you into the right place to understand what I'm going to be talking about in this little Easter egg that's hidden in this psalm is that you have to back up to Psalm chapter 15. <clears throat> I've mentioned before that Psalms is broken up into books, and this particular sermon series that we're doing is covering book one of the Psalms overall. And, and so we're looking at the first 40 or so Psalms in the overall book of Psalms as book one. But even just like in a book, there are chapters that divide up and, and, and kind of separate out. There are also sections that make up a, a certain theme, if you will, that, that these five chapters or these ten chapters make up this theme or that theme, right? So the beginning of the current theme that we are in started in Psalm chapter 15. This is a, five, a, a short little five-verse psalm, and it serves as the beginning bookend of this section, and Psalm 24 serves as the end of that section. So before we read Psalm 24 together as a church, I want to back up and read to you just this short little five verse Psalm, Psalm 15. And, and I want you to have it in your mind as we then read together Psalm 24 as a church. Psalm 15 says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes 
A vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So with that in the back of our minds, as we now read together this morning, Psalm 24, read it with me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, in this psalm, David is describing a scene that is happening when the Lord returns. But before he does that, he starts off with a couple of verses here in the very beginning of this psalm, and he wants us to know something about this earth. Namely, in verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of Thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David wants us to see that the, the earth that we are living in belongs to God. Now, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And when we forget that fundamental truth, we start to think all kinds of errant things. When we start to think this earth belongs to us, then we start acting differently. We start treating the earth differently. But when we see that the Lord owns the earth, we are just stewards of what the Lord owns, then that allows us to view the way we treat this earth differently. You see, we, we start to look at it as if we are stewards of it. Well, what does that mean practically? Well, one, <clears throat> we don't hold on to things too tightly. Because we know at the end of the day, everything belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us, right? So we're not fighting over our stuff anymore. We're not living and, and sacrificing and dying over our stuff anymore. But when we think we're the owners, when we think this is my land, when we think this is my house, when we think this is my stuff, then we're willing to fight. We're willing to kill other people over stuff that doesn't really ever belong to us. You may occupy that house for 30 or 40 or even 60 years, but at some point, someone else is going to occupy that house. Why? Because you don't ultimately own it. 
You see, when our hearts get so wrapped up in this world and thinking that we own all of this stuff, it changes the way we think and that changes the way we act and the way we treat other people. And David is going to say that is important. Understanding that God is the owner of this world and that we are just stewards of this world. It will enable us and it will help us to do and to answer the question that he asks next. Paul also references this passage. You may be familiar with this if you are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There is a discussion is going on about idolatry and eating meats that are offered up to uh, various demons or idols as a sacrifice before going in to the market. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Recognize that he's quoting directly here from Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness Thereof, The principle is that we don't need to reject things in this world simply because they have been misused by others. God created this world and he created it good. God created you, for instance, in his own image. And nothing that you can ever do will change that. God made you and he cares about you. But then after establishing this principle that the earth belongs to the Lord, David then asked the following question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Now this is a question that we should all be asking ourselves this morning. This is a similar question to what we saw in Psalm chapter 15, right? Psalm chapter 15 said, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill in other words who is it that is going to spend time with you in the present in your presence in heaven what what kind of people will god admit into his presence in heaven those who come into the presence of god must be holy and pure we know that because deuteronomy 4 24 says the lord your god is a consuming fire and when he says that, what he's meaning is that, that when sin and impurity comes into God's presence, his holiness consumes it. It, it consumes that sin like a fire. You, you don't come to God with your stained sinfulness and then in some way taint God. No, God is so holy and so pure that your sin is burned away before it ever touches the holy, living God. So those who come into God's presence must be holy for their own protection, lest they be burned up. Only the holy can come into his presence without being consumed. David then goes to, to answer the question and describe what that holiness looks like in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear 
deceitfully. Now David here is listing four qualifications that if we're honest this morning, it should make us all a little uncomfortable. First, the first qualification that David mentions here is that we must come to God and we must have clean hands. Now, David here is referring to our actions. The things that we do when we are out in the world interacting with others. Right? This is, this is having clean hands. We're, we're not deceiving someone. We're not taking advantage of someone. We're, we're not trying to manipulate someone. We're, we're, we're dealing with people. Our, our actions are pure in heart. Right? As Paul said, let no one seek his own good, back in 1 Corinthians 10, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, right? This is a person who's not walking around going, I've got to have my way and I've got to defend my way. It's me now looking out for others, looking out for those who are around me. Pure hands. Second, along with pure hands, we must have pure hearts. See, it's not enough to just be clean on the outside. We must be clean on the inside as well. And again, this is, this is what should make us uncomfortable. Because I know many of you, you, you know the right thing to say. You know the right way to respond to someone. But that doesn't mean that your heart is responding the right way to them. You, you get what I'm saying? Right? You, you are asked to do something for someone and you think in your mind, well, they've just squandered all their money away. They've just wasted. They made poor decisions. Why should I help them now? Why should I jump in now? Why should I show them grace now? Now, at the end of the, the day, you may do it because you know it's the right thing to do. But that doesn't mean your heart was in it. It doesn't mean your heart wanted to help them. David is saying here that not only do we have to have pure hands, not only do our actions have to be right, but the person that enters into heaven is the person who has a pure heart. That the inside is just as clean as the outside. Otherwise, we become those whitewashed tombs that Paul talks about in the New Testament. Right? We, we look pretty on the outside, but we are dead on the inside. Now, these first two qualifications focus on purity and the purity of our hearts and our hands. But there are two more requirements. The third and the fourth requirement focus on our truthfulness. The third qualification is that we're uh, the person that enters into heaven is a person who doesn't trust in lies. Verse 4 says, we must not lift up our soul to what is false. And this has to do with our hearts. The expression lift up his soul basically means to trust in something. You see that? In Psalm 25, verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In other words, to you, O Lord, I entrust my soul. So how do we trust in lies? Well, we do it in a multitude of ways. Let me give you just a few. First, we trust in lies to shield us from the consequences of our actions, don't we? Right? We, we've done something that we shouldn't have done or didn't do something we were supposed to do, and, and, and we tell it in such a way that it shields us from the consequences of our actions. 
Another way that we trust in lies is we're tempted to trust in the lies of others, aren't we? Right? We're, we're tempted to trust in half-truths. We, we live in a time, in a society, in a culture. The, the moment that we are living in, everybody claims to have the truth. Everybody claims to know what's really going on. And our temptation is to take our eyes off the gospel of Jesus Christ and to start putting our hearts and our eyes and entrusting ourselves to some of these false truths. And again, I'm not saying that there's no truth in what they're saying. But ultimately, if we remember the way David starts this psalm, the earth is the Lord's. He owns it. He made it. He created it. It's not my job. To protect it. It's God's job. My job is to follow Jesus. My job is to share the gospel faithfully. My job is to disciple as many people as I can. That is what is clearly laid out to us in Scripture. We are to disciple them in the ways of God, not in the ways of politics, not in the ways of medicine, but in the ways of God. But so many times we're tempted to trust in others' half-truths or others' lies. The fourth qualification our text mentions is to not swear deceitfully. And this moves from our hearts again to our words. This includes our spoken words, our written words, our texted words. right? All of the electronic ways in which we communicate to one another. That we don't swear Deceitfully. In other words, that we don't use our words in ways that are deceitful. Now, at this point in the text, you should be thinking one thing. <laughs> I don't stand a chance, right? Like, but this is good news to the Christians this morning. The more we see the depth of our sin, the more we'll see the height of God's love for us. When we know we've been given, we've been forgiven of so much. We will love him so much more. See, for the Christian, seeing your sinfulness should not lead to depression and despair. It should lead to hope. If it leads to depression and despair, chances are you're not really believing in the gospel. You're believing in some form of legalism. That, that, that you are, are doing the work that's necessary for your salvation. But when you believe the gospel, the gospel at its heart is that you can't do it. That you are inadequate. And you need a savior. You need Jesus. And so in those moments where you realize, maybe me reading off some of these qualifications this morning, you realize, man, I don't measure up. Rather than going to despair and depression and discouragement and walking out of here with our head held down and we're just downcast, a Christian says next, this is why I need Jesus. This right here, this is why I need a Savior. Because I can't save myself. God, thank you for sending Jesus to save me. You see, that's how understanding our sinfulness is good news to a Christian. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this should terrify you. And you can leave here today ignoring what God requires of you today. 
Maybe even for a couple of weeks or months or even years. But there's coming a point. There's coming a point in which you can't ignore it any longer. And that's the moment you die. But this morning, if you're here and you're not a believer, listen to how Jesus is described in Scripture. Right? David, David describes Jesus as he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Did Jesus have clean hands? Yes, Hebrews 4.15. The Bible says that Christ committed no sin. Instead, his hands served, healed, and were pierced on the cross for you and for me. What about a pure heart? The Bible says in, first, in John 1.14 that he is full of grace. Did he trust in God? The Bible says, yes, that he entrusted himself to God who judges justly, 1 Peter 2.23. Truthful? Yes. The Bible says that there was no deceit was ever found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.22. So Jesus alone meets these four requirements. And as our text promises, next in verse 5, he received blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The resurrection was God's vindication of his sinless son. And, and the good news this morning for those that put their faith and trust of Jesus is that what Jesus did wasn't just for himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake God made him who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So how much does God love us? He, he sent his only son to purify and to wash us from the guilt that stains us and would cause us to be consumed by God's holiness. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God, or seek the face of God, the God of Jacob, Selah. What should jump out to you is that in this verse, there is a shift in this psalm from the singular to the plural. This verse, verse 6, describes a whole group of people. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this verse. Our Lord Jesus Christ could ascend the hill of the Lord because his hands were clean and his heart was pure. And if we by faith are conformed to his image, we shall enter too. Another commentary Put it this way, we are saved through a relationship with Christ that is so powerful, it changes us to become like Him. So we start this psalm out with a question. Who, who can enter into the presence of God? Who can enter into the presence of a holy, righteous God? We're answered in the singular, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He, verse 5, will receive blessings. But then there's this shift. <laughs> there's a shift in the story, right? Now, I imagine for a Jewish person reading along, they saw themselves as he, or they saw David as he. But we, having the whole scripture, both Old and New Testament, we look back at this and we see Jesus. 
Jesus is the singular he referenced here by David. But then we also see ourselves. Again, verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. That same generation, they will also receive the righteousness that enables them to enter into the presence of God. You see how David planted that little Easter egg there for us. So that one day looking back, we would be able to see, ah, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the church. David had no concept of the church, and yet he's, as a prophet, he is prophesying about the church. But it doesn't stop there. The, the, set, the last section of verses here, they transport us to the gates of heaven. And these verses declare Christ's glorious return. Psalm 24 ends the section, and, it, and it's focusing us on Jesus' welcome into God's presence. And much of Psalm 24 is an echo of Psalm 15, which started off this section of Scripture. And, and together, when you look at Psalms 15 and 24 as the bookends of this section, what's the central focus of all 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24? The central focus seems to be Christ being welcomed by God back into his presence. Now, if we compare that to the previous section, which would have been Psalm chapter 3 through 14, that teaches us that Christ would be rejected by men. And then here in the next section, we see Christ being accepted by God. Christ is introduced to us in Psalm 2 as God's king. God's king who, again, would be rejected, Psalm 3 through 14, would be rejected by men, but then accepted by God in Psalms 15 through 24. The picture here in verses 7 through 10 is Christ ascending Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord, riding up to the gates of the heavenly city as its king. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Now you notice there that it's plural, gates and doors. Revelation 21 helps us to understand why you see this plurality of gates and doors. Revelation 21 describes that, that there is an angel assigned to each of these gates in New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, the mountain of God, right? And he showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. Notice this. With twelve gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the three on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates and on the west three gates so this is this is why we have in verse 7 open up O gates O ancient doors because there are multiple doors into the into the city of New Jerusalem and what's pictured here in the mind is we should imagine 
an angel who was responding to the question, who is the king of glory? Lift up your heads, O gates, that the king of glory may come in. And the angel replies, who is the king of glory? To which the response comes back, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. How in the world is Christ returning to heaven mighty in battle? When Jesus leaves this earth, he was crucified. He did not lead a war. He did not lead an army. He by himself went to the cross and was nailed there for you and for me. So how is Christ mighty in battle. Well, let me tell you, he's mighty in battle because he triumphed in that moment over death, hell, and the grave through the power of the resurrection on that cross. And he rode up to heaven as a conqueror with the battle won. He never had to lift a finger. He didn't need an army to fight for him. And then we see this Exchange repeated again in verse 9 and 10. Why are the gates asked to lift up their heads and open a second time? Did they open the first time? Did they not open and they had to ask again? Now, this could be poetry, right? The Psalms are songs and sometimes we repeat certain stanzas. But this could also be one of those really subtle Marvel-type moments where there's this Easter egg planted in Scripture, right in plain sight, but yet without the context of the resurrection, wouldn't make a lot of sense. You see, I believe the Holy Spirit is hinting here of Jesus entering into Zion, the holy hill of God, not once, but twice. Notice that the answer is different in verse 10. It's not as though we're repeating the chorus of a song and it's the same chorus that we're repeating over and over for poetic license. Note that the wording changes. In verse 8, who is the king of glory? The answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Singular, again, we're talking about one person entering in to heaven. But then the second time, who is the king of glory is asked, Listen to the response. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The first time he entered in as a great king in verse 8, who defeated his enemies on the cross. But the difference here in verse 10, the second answer is that he is the Lord of hosts. And hosts would be his army. And this pictures Jesus entering not by himself, but with a great host behind him. Revelation 19.11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Does that, that sound familiar? Right? Someone who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his self to uh, his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That, that sounds like somebody who is faithful and true. Psalm 15 said, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth. So Revelation 19 says, The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on that that no one but himself knows. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. See, the picture here is that Jesus is returning a second time. The first time as at the crucifixion. But the second time he is returning, he is returning triumphant over all of the world, over all of sin. And there is a host of people following him back into the holy hill, Mount Zion. This is one of those moments in scripture where I believe God plants something, the Holy Spirit plants something that, that on the surface we just kind of read past it, but but it's emphasizing and it's showing us that not only did Christ come the first time to die for us on the cross, but just as his word promises, he's coming back again. And when he does, all of his enemies will be vanquished. And returning back to the holy city will be Jesus and a heavenly host of the church Christians like you and me who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, following him back into heaven. The question that I want to leave you with this morning is will you be a part of his hosts? You know what God requires of you. Do you think you can meet those standards on your own? I know I can't. I know I need a Savior. I know every day I'm reminded of why I need Jesus. The question this morning is, are you? Because if you know Jesus, you will know life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for planting these things in Scripture thousands of years before the events would either happen or even be recorded as future prophecy. Helping us to know and trust in you as the one who sees yesterday, today, and tomorrow all at once. We can entrust ourselves to you because you and you alone know the future. Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us with his clean hands and his pure heart and who didn't lift up his soul to what was false and who didn't swear deceitfully so that we might experience and receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from God and salvation. Father, thank you Thank you for making a way where we could not make a way. When it wasn't possible, you intervened. God, we praise you for that this morning. And I pray that everyone listening to this sermon will put their faith and trust 
in Jesus and acknowledge their own inadequacy. Acknowledge that they can't save themselves. Confess their sin to you and turn from it, Lord. And allow the Holy Spirit living inside of them to change them, to transform them into the image of your Son day by day. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name.